Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. My name is Michael Crawford. With me again, as always, uh, Jeff Crawford. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Excited to uh, be in this month of resortness. I feel very relaxed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Kicking back on the beach. Enjoying a tasty beverage and uh, preparing for a world cruise or some sort of evening entertainment of Let's some sort. So. Yes. Maybe head down to the Chummery for some uh, Stratton and Christopher action after after the parks close. Uh, as Jeff indicated, we are spending this month of our Walt Disney World 50th anniversary retrospective to talk about the Vacation Kingdom of the World. And we have a really special guest for our town hall this month. Uh, we're going to be talking to Bob Holland, who spent 26 years at Disney, 26 years plus, and uh, retired as the vice president of resort development. Very fitting uh, for our topic today, Jeff. Yes, it's a window into uh, some things that were going on that we were trying to figure out as young internet sleuths, Michael. So it's a a look behind the veil. I know it is. I was really excited to talk to Bob because uh, he's someone I actually was introduced to via the magical world of Twitter and which he is on and you should follow him obviously on there. But um, yeah, he's somebody who always seemed to have an interesting story and hinting at even more interesting stories. And so I kept uh, bugging him every time he'd drop one of these tidbits and said, well, I'm going to have to interview you someday. So I was really excited to finally be able to sit down and talk to him and get some of his stories. Uh, as you can tell, he had a long and varied career, and I have a feeling we'll be hearing from him hopefully again in the future sometime. He's got a lot of, lot of tales to tell, a lot of hands and a lot of different projects. So That's right. um, we're really excited to hear from him. So today we'd like to welcome Bob Holland. Uh, thank you for joining us, Bob. Uh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Really interested to hear your stories and uh, some of your memories because uh, you're you're from a discipline that we really haven't spoken to yet. So I'm interested in hearing sort of this side of the imaginary coin, so to speak. First, I was wondering how you came to be involved with Disney. Just tell us a little bit about your background and how that started. Sure. I'm an architect by training or education and by license, at least until recently when I retired it. Uh, went to school in Pennsylvania and, you know, I, I'm, well, I'm about to turn 70 this coming week. So with my generation, I grew up with Walt Disney on TV. I had never been to any of the Disney properties until like 1976 or something like that. So well past my youth. Um, but I remember, you know, obviously growing up with Walt on TV, whatever night of the week it was at that time, and the original Mouseketeers Club with Annette Funicello and all that gang, and <laughs> Davy Crockett. I remember Davy Crockett made quite an impression on me. And um, so, you know, I was sort of the, the typical Disney child, I guess, of, of that generation. 
Um, I would say the first exposure I had to Disneyland was one was the was the Disney TV specials re related to Disneyland. But I also had one of those 3D viewers. I remember having uh, some of those slides of 3D pictures of Disneyland. I thought that was that was pretty cool. But I, I never had an opportunity to go to Disney until um, well, I went to architecture school and graduated and. I had, I had done it. My thesis uh, was on hospital design. So that's what I ended up doing for the first four or five years of my career. I actually worked for the Veterans Administration, first in, in Washington, D.C., designing healthcare facilities. And then about two and a half, three years out in Palo Alto, San Francisco area, um, overseeing the, the building of several medical facilities. And it came to a point where, uh, one, I decided that government wasn't going to be my lifelong career. It was fine for at that point in time. I always wanted to live in California, so it gave me that opportunity. But um, it really wasn't what I wanted to do forever. And so I started looking for jobs. And frankly, um, growing up in Pennsylvania, I always wanted to live on the West Coast and San Francisco area was about perfect, and I really wanted to stay there, and I was looking for jobs in the San Francisco area, and there weren't a lot of them, so I broadened my search to L.A., and um, looking at the L.A. Times one weekend, of course, this is long before the internet and job postings on the internet and those kinds of things, I, I saw an ad for WED Enterprises, which I had no clue who WED Enterprises was. Uh, at no point did it say Disney. It didn't identify it as Disney, although the the ad was sort of a placard that was being held by this thing that looked suspiciously like a mouse. Uh, you could see <laughs> above the placard, you could see half of two mouse ears, and you could kind of see the you know the Mickey-like arms and and legs sticking out, uh, the arms holding the placard, and they were advertising for engineering positions, mechanical, structural, electrical, if I remember correctly, which I was none of those. And it was for a project called Epcot, which I had no clue what it was. And it indicated it was in Florida, which was the last place I wanted to move because at that time, unlike I am now, I was young. And I figured only old people like me lived in Florida. But anyway, <laughs> you know, typed up my resume and letter and sent it off. And I was applying to a couple other companies at the time. And I had one other good offer at, at that time. And I figured I would never hear from Disney again. And lo and behold, a week or two later, I got a phone call from them. And they said, would you like to come down to Burbank for uh, or Glendale for an interview? And I said, heck, yeah, sure. Why? Why, why not? So it was 79, and I went down to, to Glendale and, and um, you know, met some of the people. I don't know how many of them. John Dozovich, who was the head of uh, engineering, and Glenn Durflinger who, Durflinger, who was the head architect. And it was a typical WED interview where, you, you know, you meet like six or eight or ten people. I don't remember. And they made me a, a job offer. And it actually was a little bit less money than the other company was offering me. But I thought Disney sounded a lot cooler in spite of being in Florida. And they wanted to hold me off and not start until like January of 1980. But my job in San Francisco area was was finishing in the summer. And I said, look, I, I said, they're going to move me somewhere else, the government. And I don't want to move somewhere else for six months and then, you know, have them spend that money and my all the hassles for me. And then I have to say I'm leaving. You know, is there any way we can start earlier? And surprisingly, they said, sure, no problem. We'll just move you down to Glendale for six months. 
And you can get to know the people on designing Epcot and your boss that's going to be moving to Florida. And, and, and it was a great opportunity for me. Uh, you know, I ended up working for what was the WED resident engineering office in Florida. And I was, other than my boss, I was the only person on that entire team who had the opportunity to actually spend, you know, a fair amount of time in Glendale um, seeing the project being designed and meeting all the project managers and, you know, some of the show producers and, you know, people, Marty Scalar and people like that. So it was, it was a tremendous opportunity for me. So I worked there from July of 79 to basically Christmas of that year. And then I drove across the country and I started here in Orlando, figuring that, you know, I knew Epcot was this huge job. It was supposedly the largest private construction project in in the U.S., if not the world at the time. And I figured, well, I'd work for them for about three years, and they lay everybody off, which they did pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But three years or four years with Disney would look out of my resume, and I'd go do something else. Uh, Well, my, you know, three or four years ended up being about 26 and a half years. But anyway, it it was a great way to start. Sure. What were you hired as initially to do? I was hired as um, part of the resident resident engineering staff. Large projects, it's not unique to Disney, but large projects often have a field office. Sometimes they're called resident engineering. Sometimes they're called different things. Uh, My boss happened to be an ex-U.S. Navy guy, and and he was an engineer, so maybe that's why they adopted that term. But um, I was essentially the field architect, and in, in that role, I wasn't designing anything. As you know, the the actual design of things is pretty tightly held to uh, a small group of creative people. But it was my role to um, help interpret that design as it came to the field, uh, do quality control, make sure that it was built technically the way it was supposed to be, and one of our biggest jobs ended up being answer a lot of questions because the documents were far from complete, not surprising. <laughs> and there was constant revisions and constant uh, questions. So we were essentially the interface between Tishman, the construction manager, and all the various general contractors and subcontractors. We interfaced between them and the, the WED design group, uh, most of which was in California. I was wondering, who, who was your boss? My boss was, is, he's still alive. His name is Miller Andrus. Uh, he had been hired maybe six to nine months before I did. He had a long military career, uh, CBs and things like that. Uh, he was a captain in the Navy when he retired or commander or one of those positions. And uh, he, w- he was a great guy. I mean, he was really one of the people that left a real mark on my career. Uh, very organized and very technical and and I remember the first thing he told me when I got to Florida, because he, he had moved down to Florida before I did. He had set up the, the resident engineering office, which was always in trailers for most of the time. And I remember showing up, and the first thing he told me was get a haircut. <laughs> I said, but Wed does, doesn't have any grooming standards. But my boss, who I say was ex-military, but he says, but you are Walt Disney World now, so you will follow their standards. Yes, sir. So. <laughs> oh wow! Anyway, he he was a great guy, and uh, like I say I was hire number two. I would say by the time I actually got to Florida, we might have had eight or ten people because he had hired some people to look after the site civil work that was going on, 
And then I was pretty much involved in the hiring of the rest of the staff. I, I would say of the new direct hires, we might have had 30, 35, something like that. But then the last year of building Epcot, then we also became sort of the homeroom for a lot of the WED California people, people that you know were more than business tripping. They were coming down and staying for six months or a year or whatever. So we ended up being the homeroom for them. And I think at the end, we were probably pretty close to 100 people. But um, so it was it was great to be with an organization that was growing like that. I learned a lot about, you know, how to put an organization together and, and also how to, you know, deal with designers that were, you know, at the other side of the country. I remember getting our first fax machine where you had to put it in one sheet at a time on a drum that would rotate for seven minutes. And that would then give you a fuzzy facsimile of it at the other end. So, wow, I I can't even imagine. And then we were so excited when I don't think it was FedEx, but whatever the forerunner was of FedEx, it was so exciting to be able to get drawing real drawings like almost overnight. That's something that amazes me about this project is that. You know, I know people today complain at Imagineering about, you know, when you're stuck doing video conferences instead of in-person things and doing East Coast, West Coast things. I can't imagine doing this back in the day when so much of the creative team was in California and just either having to fly out or having to mail everything. It It's just uh, really hard to imagine. Yeah, it was, I gotta say, I mean, the fax machine, we did not have day one. I mean, it may have come in the second year and, and it truly took seven minutes to send one page and it was really, you could not send a drawing. You could, that's one page of eight and a half by 11. Uh, and I know that, you know, Disney had uh, that uh, prop plane uh, that would fly back and forth about once a week. Uh, from California and we used to sometimes if we needed something in a real rush if we knew somebody that was had some control of what got on the plane we would ask them to load on a roll of drawings or something but you know and and the the drawings for a typical Epcot pavilion the the numbers of sheets was well into the you know thousand twelve hundred sheets of drawings and you know to think that none of that was done digitally it was all drawn by hand pretty much in those days uh you know, CAD, AutoCAD was, I think, just starting, but I don't remember much of it being drawn digitally. And it certainly wasn't able to transmit it digitally. That's remarkable. Well, you see these photos from the time of these drafting rooms out there at WED and just these vast rooms of drafting tables. Yeah, yeah sure was. Uh, I, I, You know, I'm sure there were a few people working on computers, you know, maybe some R&D people and things like that. But everything that I saw was pretty much hand drawn. Now, you know, a lot of the actual construction documents were drawn by third party firms, but still most of them looked like they were hand drawn at that time. Mm. So you arrive in Florida and uh, I was just wondering what what the site was like when you arrived. What, how did you find things when you're finally on the ground? It was several hundred acres of basically cleared land. Uh, mm-hmm. The bulk of the trees were gone. There were, there were a few exceptions, which I'll talk about in a minute. But um, you know, I, again, I should have all these statistics in my brain, but unfortunately my brain has been draining things over the last 10 years or so. But 500 acres or whatever the site was, something of that order, 
Um, virtually all of it was cleared. The, the only thing that wasn't cleared uh, to any great extent was part of what became the World Showcase Lagoon, particularly the area that's over towards Odyssey Restaurant. That whole area still had a stand of trees on it because um, the entire site had been geotechnically drilled. You know, they, they have drill rigs that they go in and they take core samples of the soil to determine um, what is the bearing capacity for buildings. And, and the good news, and one of the reasons the site was taken or was picked uh, or, you know, originally was, I guess, done in the Walt days, but later confirmed that it was a good site was the borings indicated for the most part, the buildings could rest on regular what they call spread footer foundations where you didn't have to put deep piles in. and there, there certainly were some exceptions. Um, the, the major problem area though was um, sort of the, the east side of World Showcase Lagoon and over towards Mexico and where Odyssey is that there's a tremendous or there was, well there still is a tremendous amount of muck there and mm -hmm. muck is essentially organic material. Um, it occurs most frequently in Florida when Florida typically has a limestone subbase that's below the sand. It can be down 20, 30, 80, 100 feet, depends. Um, the limestone is fairly porous, and uh, over eons of time, it can give way because of the, the water that's flowing uh, beneath the surface. It, the, the rock actually dissolves. And when it gives way, you have sinkholes, which, you know, as, as you know, living in central Florida, whenever you fly in and out of Orlando, um, all you see is these circular ponds and lakes and things like that. <laughs> well, the circle is is because that's a sinkhole. And typically when the when the sub rock collapses, everything collapses in more or less a, a circular cone. And over eons, that cone fills with, uh, you know, trees that fell in and leaves and other organic material, and it essentially rots and more or less becomes peat. It, it becomes an organic decayed material. And in the area of, of Seven Seas Lagoon, I mean, I'm sorry, World Showcase Lagoon, particularly towards Odyssey, um, the depth of that muck was unknown. They, they drilled, I don't know, a couple hundred feet and never found the bottom of it. So it was uh, it was a huge sinkhole. And so the pro one of the most really probably relatively unknown but pretty impressive engineering feats of Epcot was what to do with that. So the reason the stand of trees was there was um, they did they did take the trees down, but they left the root mat, the mat that um, you know, essentially is, is the root structure of all the trees that were there. And they, they left that intact. And then they started pushing soil sand up on top of it to create a surcharge. And in, in Florida and a lot of other places that have similar geology, you can compress that muck. So think of it as a sponge, a wet sponge. And if you push, if you put the wet sponge on a table or something and you push on it, all the water will start coming out of it and the, and the sponge will compress. Well, mm. they, they, that's essentially what they were doing with the muck. And what they wanted to do was, was lower the top of the muck so that it was at least, again, my numbers could be slightly off now, but it was at least 20 or 30 feet below the existing uh, level of the land. 
And then they started piling more um, sand on top of it. And that essentially is a good portion of the bottom of World Showcase Lagoon. There's actually muck under World Showcase Lagoon, at least on the side that's towards Mexico and, and Odyssey. And uh, it took a long, long time to do that. Um, what was surcharging in itself is not so unique, but again, something that I think is almost lost to time, except for the engineers that were there, was the problem was how to do that relatively quickly. So they, they had some what they call borrow pits. When you need fill for a site, and we certainly needed a lot of clean fill for a site, you, you dig holes and then you put the sand in a truck and you drive the truck to the site and you dump the sand. And so they had established some borrow pits down near what is now um, Pop Century and mm. um, um, Caribbean Beach. Um, in fact, the, the gondola now goes over one of them. And so they oh. had, had these uh, large borrow pits down there that had already been dug. And some, somebody came up, one of the engineers that was a consultant to Disney, came up with the idea of floating a dredge in, in the part of World Showcase Lagoon that had already been dug where there wasn't muck and put a dredge in there and then start removing the muck by dredge and then they ran a pipeline about a mile and a half down to again where pop is today and they started dumping all that mucky dirty water into one of the the borrow pits already been dug they then pumped that water that had settled out a lot of the muck into an adjacent borrow pit that had already been there and then they pumped the water a mile and a half back to world to seven world showcase lagoon so that they could keep the dredge afloat and that went on for i don't know 6 months something like that wow. and then the, when the when the water came back um, it also had a lot of sand in it and they would then they would distribute that sand on top of where the trees used to be, where the muck was, to create this way to compress the muck. So um, it, it was a pretty cool operation, not the kind of thing that you could sell many tickets for, I suppose, but in the engineering <laughs> world, the construction world, it was uh, pretty remarkable at the time. That is really amazing that they hit upon that kind of, a, I mean, that that's very elaborate. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it was and one night. We, so my boss, I'm trying to simplify this as much as possible, it's really not that complex, but you had to make sure that the sand got distributed evenly on top of the root mat, particularly the first couple layers. Because if you didn't, the weight of, of if you had too much sand in one place, it would actually start to punch through the, the root mat and would create what they called a muck wave, where the muck would start to displace horizontally. And there was a lot of concern that if a muck wave got out of control, that they might have a hard time getting it back under control and being able then to build what we wanted to build there. And so my boss decided to institute a muck wave watch. And that was relatively easy to do during the day because we had a lot of civil field superintendent guys who were experts and they also had the advantage of daylight. But my boss decided that this needed to go on 24 hours a day because they were pumping sand and water on top of the surcharge 24 hours a day. So for about a month or so, he organized our office so that we would, have, we would take turns in doing all night muck, muck wave watch. And I'll never forget the first night that I had it. It was a stormy, rainy night, no moon, dark. 
and you know about every half hour hour i drive out on the, with the truck out onto the site and it was scary as heck because you'd see water on the ground and you know where the water was six inches deep or six feet deep or 20 feet deep mm-hmm. and i kind of you know i knew where the edge of the the lagoon was at that time and i crept up on it and the bulldozer had some lights on it but just where the bulldozer was working and you know i had the headlights of the car and that was it i couldn't see anything and so anyway i you know i went and looked and when it came time for the other people to come in in the morning i said well i said to be honest i didn't see much but i don't think anything happened so i went home and slept for a few hours came back in in the afternoon and my boss says what the heck did you do we had a muck wave last night oh no I said, I couldn't see a thing. And he said, well, fortunately, we were able to contain it. But, you know, I'm not sure I want you on Muckwave Watch anymore. <laughs> I went, good. I'll look, at, I'll look at roofs and other things that I understand. <laughs> yes, it's, there, are, there are worse things being removed from Muckwave Watch, I would imagine. That, well, how long did all that go? How long did this, you know, all this take this dealing with the the muck and the lagoon and everything i think it was six months or more because the issue is once you pile it all up there you can't take it off right away because it will rebound so you gotta you gotta let it sit so i I think the placing of the fill might have been six or eight months and then i think it sat for another six months so the area that particularly was around where the mexico restaurant is along the shoreline and the Odyssey restaurant, that area had to be constructed last. Now, Odyssey's on very deep steel piles uh, because um, it, it had to be placed on top of the muck. So they, they did what they call a friction pile. But it was interesting. That in Spaceship Earth and maybe American Adventure, I could be wrong, and Seas Pavilion, which was later, are the only ones that are not on fairly typical foundations because the rest of the site was fine. That's remarkable that, I mean, we're talking about all the work that had to go in just to prepare the site, much less build anything on it. And uh, it's interesting to look at the, you know, the models and the renderings over time, because, you know, in the earlier things, they were clearly building out all the way to the lagoon and that Odyssey area wasn't really there. It was built over. They wanted to build things there. But you can tell over time as they realized that that wasn't going to happen. Well, I mean, as I'm sure you know, there was, there was a radical rethinking of how they were going to do World Showcase Lagoon. And, and I, I don't have all the background on that. But I suspect that at least some of it had to do that once they got the borings of that area where Odyssey is, um, they just knew that building significant buildings there was going to be a real problem. So that could have been one of the things that changed the direction as well. So after Epcot starts to get buttoned up, Disney World, well, first there's this management change, this big management change. And uh, what was that like? You talking to Eisner or? Yes, to Eisner. Well, I, again, it was funny in in doing the sort of the post-opening things at Epcot, it it ended up being that I was virtually the only person on the resident engineering staff anymore. And I kept getting dumped all these different projects. 
And it seemed there were times when I would call back to WED in California to talk to the job captain or the show designer. I would be informed that person no longer works for the company. Yeah. And so it was, it was kind of a strange period. And, and, and I fully expected that I would be cut sooner or later. But for whatever reason, the group that used to be called WED Florida or WED East at one point in time, um, became Walt Disney World Design and Engineering. Essentially the same people, but again, changed instead of its reporting relationship to Glendale, it, its reporting relationship was to World. And uh, I got hired over there and I did smaller, I shouldn't say hired, I just got transferred over there. And for about a year and a half or two years, I did smaller add-ons to Lake Buena Vista, Magic Kingdom, what have you. Um, it was during that period of time that the company was going through a lot of downsizing. We had a lot of Black Fridays. Um, by then, though, I was management, so I usually had some clue what was going on <laughs> and that I wasn't going to be one of the ones that got the axe. Um, but anyway, um, the company was in big trouble. The That one raider came in and was buying up significant portions of the company. Uh, or shares in the company, and, and his stated objective was to break up the company. Um, we really didn't know what was going to happen. The company had kind of lost its way post-Epcot and post-Tokyo Seas. Uh, it didn't seem to know where to go. A lot of its movies weren't that successful. It just didn't seem to know where to go. I think Ron Miller, actually, from everything I've read, and I really didn't know the guy, was probably a lot better than people gave him credit for. But the company was in trouble. Mm -hmm. And um, again, if you read the books, what I've read the books, most of them I think are pretty accurate. Um, Eisner and Wells were brought in. I remember there was a big pep rally at the at the castle pre-opening one day. I don't know. We had to go out there like 7.30 or 8 in the morning. And, <laughs> and Eisner and Wells got you know, enthroned in their role of, of being the new leaders. Um, it, it was impressive to see new blood. Um, I do remember during that period of time, there was a guy by the name of Bob Smith who worked for the company for a long time, who became my boss when I was working at Walt Disney World Design and Engineering. And Bob one day said to me, he said, well, let's have lunch with John Hench. He's in town. And, and again, I had met John and worked with him a little bit, but I really never had lunch with him before. And we went to what was the Lake Buena Vista Club. And it was right after the Eisner Wells thing got announced. And so Bob asked John, he said, well, what do you think about this? And John said, well, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting. He said, for the first time, Disney's going to go Hollywood. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, up, up to this point in time, Disney was always more or less a family-run company. Even after Walt and Roy died, Card Walker and Ron Miller and that gang were more or less family. And and they really, yes, they produced movies, but they really weren't in the Hollywood mainstream. And he said, with, with Eisner and Wells coming in, he said, at that time, he said, I don't know a lot about them other than their reputation in the industry. And they have a good reputation, but he said, they are Hollywood. And he said, you know, it's, it's going to be a different world. And, and so, you know, I guess it was. Again, I, in those days, I wasn't yet that directly exposed to Michael and, and Frank Wells. I, I, I got to when I started working for Disney Development Company. But I do remember when I was still in the old uh, Walt Disney World Design and Engineering Group, um, we were told that Michael and Frank were coming in with some of the other 
people, head senior management, Dick, obviously people like that, but also a representative from the Bass Brothers. And at that time, the Bass Brothers owned something like 25% of the company. They, you know, they were one of the wealthiest or wealthiest families in the country. And they were really, in many ways, the, the ones that saved the company. Um, Roy Disney Jr. sort of, I guess, solicited their support. They came in as a as a friendly group, and they bought up the shares from the unfriendly person. And once that happened, then they were instrumental in helping to get Michael and Frank installed as the new leadership. But anyway, they were coming in town, and we were told to basically get ready for them, to show them everything that had been designed that we thought was worthwhile but never built. And so out of the Disney World archives, they dug out a whole bunch of different projects. And, and I wasn't in the room. I was on the other side of the wall. I wasn't quite that senior in those days. But one of the guys that I ended up working for was in the room. And one of the things we showed them was a Grand Floridian. Now, the Grand Floridian had gone on for many years off and on, including I had worked on it for some time post-Epcot. And it was essentially a, a site plan at best and a rendering of a Victorian hotel. And they showed it to, to Michael and Frank and the Bass Brothers. And the, and the Bass Brothers said, hotels, 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 hotels. You've got to build hotels. And when they saw that, they said, well, why haven't you built the, the Grand Floridian? And, and the answer was, frankly, that the company just didn't seem to be committed to building more hotels. And the Bass Brothers, owning 25% of the company, said, you are now. <laughs> and so essentially at that meeting, they said, Grand Floridian is going to be your first hotel project. And so that got green-lighted at that, at that uh, meeting. Of course, we had no idea what it was going to cost or how long it was going to take to build or anything else. We just knew it was sort of Victorian and what site it was on. And uh, I ended up then fairly quickly moving from the Walt Disney World side to the new Disney Development Company, which was in charge of, essentially became in charge of everything that wasn't a theme park. Right. So they formed that. That was a formation when they really decided to get into the hotel, the hotel side of things. They, they formed this unit to take that on, correct? There was criticism of WED for the so-called cost overruns of Epcot. Now, I think to be fair to WED, the you know the original budget did not at all reflect what the final product was. I mean, there was a tremendous amount of scope added to to Epcot over the over the years of design. But you know, some people were arguing that it cost, you know, that it started at five hundred million and ended up at one point two billion. Um, again, I think that's unfair, but um, there was pushback from some people, and I really think a lot of it came from the park operating group, that we just can't continue to do projects that we're told is going to cost X and end up being cost 2X. And we need to have a group of people come in that know how to do hotels, which ironically I knew nothing about, but at any rate. <laughs> so the Bass Brothers um, said... And I'm not sure it was just them, but in the conversation with the new senior management, they decided they wanted a new, a new division that was going to focus on everything but the theme parks. And to put this company together, they were going to bring in outside talent that had done major high-quality real estate development and hotel development in, in other places. And so the development company was formed, I don't think, 
Wed was very happy about it uh, for for quite a few years. Frankly, the relationship between Wed and and Disney Development Company was fairly strained, and frankly, Michael created some of that purposely. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I, you know, our our agenda as the development company became you do everything that's not a theme park. So that's kind of how the line was drawn. In fact, Disney Development Company ended up doing all the master planning for the company, including where theme parks would go and that kind of thing. They just didn't design anything inside the berm, which I think also was a little frustrating for for Wet. Um, so they, they brought in some people from the outside, people that had tremendous experience in, in real estate development. As far as the hotels were concerned, by that time, I believe Gary Wilson, who became the CFO for the Walt Disney Company, was on board. Gary Wilson used to be CFO of the Marriott Corporation. Marriott was the big, big player in the hotel business in, in those days. And Gary had some very strong feelings about how the hotels should be developed, what kind of hotels. In fact, there was a big push at the time that the hotels should be transferred to Marriott operation that um, they would be branded as Disney World hotels, but in fact would be operated by Marriott. Sort of like Swan and Dolphin it today is, I think, operated by Marriott. It used to be operated by Lowe's. Um, and that one of the arguments was that Disney wouldn't necessarily have to invest all the money in the hotels, that Marriott could invest the money. And I remember Grand Floridian was well in design at that point in time, and, and my boss, Hal McIntyre, I worked with for many years, great guy, he said, well, Bob, he said, uh, you need to work with Abe Quibben. Abe Quibben is a, is a show designer that was with Wed for many, many years and was involved in the original design of Grand Floridian because it started in-house. But he said, you got to work with him and we need to start stripping off detail, all this Victorian detail, so we can get it to a Marriott budget. And uh-huh. so we did a series of drawings and kept stripping things off and stripping things off. I sort of kept the form of the building and the plan of the building, but you know there wasn't a lot left architecturally. And Michael basically said, over my dead body, he said, I think it's the wrong thing to do. He said, I think that well, when people come to Walt Disney World, it should be a Disney experience, that we shouldn't be having other people run our hotels. And no, we're not going to go that direction. So we got the budget restored. <laughs> And the design, more or less, and uh, we went on and, and built the Grand Floridian as, as the first new hotel under the Disney Development Company. And that was, during that period, that was when Dick threatened to fire me twice, but I survived. <laughs> well, what, what, what was he uh, concerned about? Well, actually, um, I forget exactly when we were supposed to open, but it was sometime after Memorial Day. And... Dick would, in those days, Dick used to come by in his Cadillac and he'd kind of snoop around. And if he saw a hole that was open, he'd want to know why the hole was open. He wanted to know what part is missing. So one day he came by and we had a hole in the nicely planted landscape where we were missing some sort of irrigation piece or something, which, so he wanted to know right away what it was. And so he then about a few hours later delivered it in his Cadillac. So that's <laughs> kind, of, kind of the way Dick was. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of stories like that where maybe he didn't threaten to fire us, but he, he clearly wanted to be, and I, I think in his own way, he was trying to be helpful, but he was also trying to show that he was the boss and could do things that we couldn't do. He could get the part quicker than we could. I don't know. 
So I had I had several encounters like that with Dick, and by then he knew who I was. And um, it was it was Memorial Day weekend, and I was sicker than a dog. And and I don't know. I saw Dick for the second or third time, getting updated. And he said, "Well, why are you here? You're sick." And I said, "Well, Dick, you know why I'm here. I got to get the job done." And he said, "Go home." And I said, "Dick, I can't go home." He says, "Go home where you're fired." <laughs> <laughs> so I called my boss. Dick wasn't my boss. I didn't even work in the same organization. I had to get through Michael Eisner to get back to, to Dick, Dick Nunes in those days. And I called my boss and I said, what should I do? My boss, who had many run-ins with Dick over the years, he says, go home. So I went home. But anyway, we, we had another issue one time about, um, oh, it had to do with the model room review at Grantford. It was before that. Um, you know, you do model rooms. Typically, you do them in a warehouse. You try to make them as authentic as possible. We did one with like that with Eisner. He didn't like it, so it had to get completely redesigned. By that time, we were building the buildings, so we did a second model room in in one of the Grand Three and Lodge buildings. It coincided with uh, a three or four day visit that Eisner was there. And he had a 60-minute film crew with him. They were doing a documentary on him. And we had to build a temporary dock so that they could arrive by water. And anyway, the, wow. the, the room that we're showing him is just crammed with all the Disney executives and 60-minute film crew. And anyway, Dick wanted to have something. And he sort of quietly said to me, well, aren't you going to get tile on, on the balcony? And I said, well, no, it's not in the budget, Dick. And... And he said, we're going to have tile. And I said, oh, well, okay, we'll talk about it. Anyway, long story short, um, a couple of days later, I got a phone call and said, Dick wants to see you in his office. And so I went to his office in the Sunbank building those days. And uh, and he uh, kind of put his arm on my shoulder and ushered me into his office and closed the door. And he, he told me in no uncertain terms that we were going to have tile. And I said, well, but, you know, I got a budget and, and we got to let Michael know. And then he said, well, then um, he reminded me who I worked for, <laughs> which was not him. But I just said, yes, Dick. <laughs> and we put tile on the balconies. But anyway. <laughs> um, and then the last time was uh, was for grand opening. Um, we were afraid we weren't going to get the presidential suite done. And and anyway, I was in the presidential suite at the day before, two days before opening or whatever, and Dick is snooping around and he said, aren't you going to get this done? And I said, yes, we're going to get it done. And anyway, when I told my boss's boss, I told Dick we were going to get it done. He said, well, you just bet your job. <laughs> <laughs> and we got it done. And I think Bette Midler stayed in an opening, grand opening night, I believe. <laughs> well, that's perfect. That sums up the Eisner era perfectly. Or, or um, Burt Burt Reynolds, I'm not sure which. I think it was Ben stayed in it. Oh my gosh! Wow. So this really kicked off a a wave of development. All the DDC hotels. Um, I noticed. I was looking at the the. I mean, the very long list of things that you worked on. Also had a, another hotel that they had announced in the early '80s when they announced what became the Grand Floridian, uh, but one that never actually did get built. And that was uh, the Mediterranean slash Venetian. It went by two different names uh, there to be built on the lagoon. And I uh, just wonder if you could tell us what happened to that project. 
Well, essentially what happened to the, well, there's many versions. I mean, there, there are versions that go back before me. I mean, it was always meant to be a hotel site and there were some sketches and some things done, but I don't think there was anything too seriously done before the first Mediterranean that, that I worked on. I actually have a picture of the model here in my office. Um, oh, nice. Which is not for publication. Um, <laughs> Michael Eisner was enamored with working with famous architects. Um, Michael knew a lot about design. He was very, um, very hands-on. I mean, when, when we would do a typical hotel project with Michael, we would probably do at least, in, in the early days, at least a half a dozen detailed design presentations to Michael, starting with the basic layout and architecture and concept and storyline, ultimately down to rugs and coverlets and wallpaper and paint colors and everything. He wanted to be that involved. Um, ultimately, he got to the point that he couldn't be that involved anymore, but that was typical for the first, I don't know, five to 10 years of, of the Michael regime. And anyway, he was very enamored with working with, with big name architects, which I think is also one of the things that the development company allowed him to do because otherwise the hotels would have been designed primarily by Imagineering. And, and again, there had been some criticism that you should be, particularly by people like Gary Wilson and the Bass Brothers, that you should be having designers design your hotels, that design hotels as living, not theme parks. And, and so with a development company, it allowed us to go to outside designers. And then in Michael's world, he was very interested in working with the big name architects of the time, the Frank Gehrys and the Bob Stearns and on and on and on. And there was a gentleman, he's still alive, his name is Antoine Predock. He ultimately designed the Santa Fe Hotel in Paris, which I finished. Um, but Antoine was a real hot property at the time, and he designed the, the Mediterranean. Um, we spent quite a bit of money. We, we took it all the way through construction documents. We actually bid the project. Wow. Um, we had some challenges with the design because Antoine likes to design in concrete. He's sort of the antithesis of Main Street and Bob Stern. And, and there were a number of sort of challenges of trying to get Antoine in line with, with what Disney would accept. But anyway, the project got designed. I, it was a very exciting project. Whether it was Disney, I don't know. We'll never know. Uh, and then the Gulf War broke out, the first Gulf War. And the problem was we had, that was like 900 rooms plus a convention hotel, a convention center. Grand Floridian had a convention center edition going, and the Yacht Beach Club had a convention center biz, uh, piece going. And ultimately, the Walt Disney Company just decided that given the Gulf War and the uncertainty of travel and things like that, that they didn't want to risk doing another hotel. So it stopped. Um, we actually moved some dirt on the site. People at one, they're a little hard to see now because they're covered by large weeds and trees and things, but. Um, there were there were mounds of earth that were brought there. They actually were brought from Port Orleans when they had excess fill. We had it hauled up to the Mediterranean site because we needed the fill, and that's as far as we got. We stopped the project. I remember at the time uh, because this this was one thing that had had been announced publicly, snooping from the monorail as we went by to see if see if dirt was being moved. And I, at one point there was 
you know, a very, as construction sites will do with the, um, you know, just like two by fours nailed together, I guess, kind of a gate there. Um, at the site, just seeing just any rough amount of dirt being moved was very exciting. Yeah. Well, the, the two by fours there were to keep the, the trucks hopefully from hitting the monorail beam. Oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I had a truck hit a monorail beam at, at Grand Floridian and we don't ever do that again. No, I've yeah, never seen so many Cadillacs converge on one place in the world in my <laughs> life. Every Walt Disney World executive was in there within about 10 minutes. And the irony of it was it was about the last load of, of white sand fill that was going to go into the sort of the extension of the uh, today where the, there's a there's a newer pool there and where the 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 vacation club villa was added in that area. We were finishing the beach and one of the last trucks to go under the monorail beam, uh, he dumped his load and then coming back, he forgot to lower his truck bed. Oh, he, he, he struck the monorail beam and shut it. Fortunately, he did not damage it structurally, but he shut it down and that was exciting. Yeah. I would imagine that would be, that would send up a, send up a flare for people to come. Uh, yeah. Well, so what you're saying about the Mediterranean and how far it got along, I guess, uh, goes to answer one of my other questions, which was about the site itself. You know, that there have always been so many rumors about that site because nothing has ever been built there. So it is a buildable site. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some rumors online that wasn't buildable, which when I see those, I jump in and say, no, that's not the, it's, it's very buildable. Like all sites in Florida, it has some challenges. There's, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, when that project died somewhere towards the end, I, I would say this was probably in the, well, I don't know, 2003, four period, maybe we did another version. We actually worked with the architect that did Grand Floridian and we did a thing called the Venetian. That was a working title. Of course, by then there was a Venetian in Las Vegas. So we probably would have had to change the name, <laughs> but they did an Italian-esque uh, Venetian. We were going to cut canals that would tie to the Seven Seas Lagoon, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's a very nice design. Um, we basically took it through concept, early schematic. And again, there just was not... Uh, the challenge with that site, it, it's the last great site on Seven Seas Lagoon. It really demands, in most people's mind, a very high-end hotel. You mm. shouldn't be putting pop there. You shouldn't be putting, you know, all-star there. Um, it should be another Grand Floridian or maybe even better. And that's what we were designing. But the company just in those days was concerned about what the hotel market was going to be at the high end. So they, we could never get it to go forward. That's interesting. And so it's just bad timing in each, in each iteration. Yeah, it was. Um, yes. You know, when you work with a company like Walt Disney company, when, I mean, first of all, you got to convince Walt Disney world. That's a good idea because as the business owner, they got to stand behind it and say, yes, we want a hotel like that. And, we think at this price point and this investment, we can make X amount of money for it. And then, you know, and then it goes to corporate and you're, they're looking at it, but you're also then fighting against ESPN and Disney Channel and Disney Plus, well, they don't have that anymore, and movies and all the other places that the company can invest money. 
and the strategic planning group is looking at where is the is the best return or where is the most synergy in the corporation and sometimes you win and sometimes you lose it's like you know i worked on the first two ships i hung around for about six years working on ship three and four off and on and every time we got close either 9 11 happened or we just couldn't get disney corporate people over the hurdle of investing, you know, six hundred million or seven hundred million dollars per ship, um, hmm. but ultimately they got over it. Right. Well, it's just funny to hear, you know, what might have been a, a insurmountable obstacle in one, you know, one year, five to ten years later is something they wouldn't, you know, think twice about, like the cruise ships, uh, something they got very bullish on later. Yeah, I mean, I, I was not, although I, I worked on um, the last year or so of the delivery of the of the Magic in, in Italy, and concurrently we were finishing the design on the Wonder, um, and then I sort of went off and did some other things for a while, then eventually I came back and worked on what ultimately would have become the third and fourth ship. Um, you know, I actually became a part of the executive team of the of the Disney Cruise Line, so I had a very close relationship with them. But ships are a huge investment. I mean, they're, you know, uh, today a ship is costing seven, eight hundred million dollars per ship, wow. depending on the size, can be more. Um, we were very close in getting um, the third and fourth ship to move forward in 2000. Um, and then 9-11 hit, and they were very concerned about what was going to happen to the cruise ship market. It ultimately did take a dip, but it recovered pretty quickly, unlike the current situation. Um, I hung around for a number of years, uh, primarily because I, I wanted to work on ships more. It was the most exciting, challenging thing, even more challenging than Epcot, if you can believe it. Uh, something completely different. Um, so I was involved in it with a small team doing some conceptual design for the third and fourth ship for on and off from, I don't know. Um, so I finally decided I had other things to do and I moved on. And of course, two years later, <laughs> I built the third and fourth ship. And now <laughs> well, you mentioned that before, you know, before this adventure in Italy on the ships, uh, before that you were in Paris for, uh, the Euro Disney slash Disneyland Paris project. Uh, what was that like? Well, again, I kind of had to laugh at some of Frank Stanek's stories because if you remember, you know, he, he ended up being put in several roles kind of at the last minute that he was not exactly prepared for necessarily or had expected that that was going to be his job. Sure. And, and Paris was another one of those for me because I had been working on the Mediterranean Hotel, the one that stopped, and it, it stopped pretty suddenly. And they, they said to me, um, would you be interested in going to Paris? Now, at this time, I, I have you know, my wife, who I'm still amazingly married to. I'm surprised she put up with all this Disney stuff over the years. But two children that are like in, I don't know, grade school and early middle school or something like that, maybe a little younger than that. And, and I said, well, what do you mean going to Paris? I said, do you mean moving? Well, no, not yet or maybe not at all, but... So I'm meeting with Peter Rummel, who, who at that time was the head of, of Disney Development Company, ultimately became the president of Imagineering for a while. 
So I'm meeting with Peter and Peter says, well, Bobby said, the problem is, he says, everybody's focused on phase one, but we have all this phase two work that we need to plan. And there's nobody who has any Disney experience that can work with the people we have in Paris to do some of this planning. So he said, you'd be a great person to go over and work with the, the Paris staff and help them with some of the planning for the second phase. And I said, okay, fine. I said, well, what does it entail? And he said, well, you know, it's probably a business trip for a week or two, three at the most, then, you know, come back to the U.S. for two, three weeks and, and do that off and on for maybe three to six months. So I said, okay, fine. Sounds interesting. So, you know, I got to break this news to my wife and everything else. And I said, well, I said, the only issue, Peter, is I said, I'm scheduled to go on vacation with a family to Europe. We were going to Switzerland or somewhere for several weeks. And um, can we do it right after I get back from that? He says, sure, no problem. So I learned a little bit more about the job and the job is going to be an office job. And in those days, they were fairly formal in the office in Paris. And so I, you know, I figure I got to take a suit and tie and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so we go off on vacation and come back right before 4th of July and I was supposed to leave like the Monday after 4th of July weekend to go to Paris for this job. So over the weekend, I, I go into the office, I get stuff that I needed because I had been away on vacation. And I go home and packing my bags with business clothes and things like that. I had not seen my direct boss at that time for some time. I had heard he was going to be back in the office that Monday morning. So I go in to say goodbye. And I go into his office. This isn't Rummel, but the guy below Rummel. And I go in to see him, and I said, well, as you know, I'm leaving for Paris this afternoon. And he said, well, yeah. He said, things have changed a little bit. I said, what do you mean things have changed? And he said, well, you know that, that role that you were supposed to play in terms of the second gate or the second phase of Disneyland Paris? I said, yeah. And I said, I, you know, I'm all packed. I'm going to get on the whatever it was, 4.30 Delta flight this afternoon, the fly to Paris. He says, well, you're not doing that anymore. I said, what do you mean I'm not doing that anymore? He said, well, he says Santa Fe Hotel, which Antoine Predock, he was the architect for um, the Mediterranean Hotel that stopped. Antoine and I got to be pretty good friends, and he's kind of a challenging personality. And anyway, the Santa Fe Hotel that Antoine's doing, he said, we think is in big trouble. Um, we just don't think that the... Paris staff has their arms around it. He said, we want you to go to Paris and basically work on the job site and, and finish the hotel. And I said, well, how long is that going to be? So this is in July. And he said, well, it's, we're supposed to turn over in November. So he said, I, I think it will be to November. So I said, all right, we can't talk very long. I said, I need to go home. I need to unpack. <laughs> I need need to tell my wife, number one, and my kids, I got to put the blue jeans and the work boots and, you know, all that kind of stuff in and catch the same plane. Yep. Okay. So I go home to break the news to my wife. And I, I said to him, I said, all right, I'll, I'll do this. But I said, the caveat is, I said, I'm still only going to stay three or four weeks at a time and you're going to have to fly me home for a long weekend. I said, I'll never make it more than four or five days unless it's Christmas, but I need to come home for a long weekend. Okay, no problem. So anyway, I go off to Paris and again, very long story short and and I love the staff over there and they were great people, but frankly it was a situation of a young project manager who I think knew the project was in big trouble in terms of schedule but was afraid to say so. Mm 
Oh, yeah. And so, you know, every monthly meeting, management would say, well, wait a minute, aren't you supposed to have this done and that done? And it looks like you're behind. Oh, no, don't worry. You know, he always had an answer. And of course, it was one of my many times that I had to go in. I couldn't afford to fire the guy because he knew 10 times, 100 times more about the project than I did. But I had to go in and basically nicely tell him, I'm now your boss. And um, anyway, we, we got it done and it turned out fine. But um, that was one of my many sort of put out the fires. And so I stayed there. Uh, gosh, I don't know. I don't think we turned over finally until middle of February. So oh, wow. A lot longer. Again, I got home for Christmas and they were very good about allowing me to fly home for long weekends. But it was very different than I signed up for. And I, I, I went back right before grand opening to make sure a couple of things got done. I, I did some tours, pre-opening tours with some of the executives. It was my one up close and personal with Jeffrey Katzenberg, which was, he turned out <laughs> to be a really nice guy. And it oh, was yeah? interesting. Uh, yeah, I had met Jeffrey once before when we did a Grand Floridian tour, and and I mean I don't know how much you know about Jeffrey and his reputation, but it's probably mostly true. And he was he was a tough guy. I mean, the story in the studio went that he would tell his staff that um, um, if you don't bother showing up on Saturday, don't bother coming in on Sunday either. Yeah. Um, you know, tough guy, very driven, very talented. Unfortunately, he and Michael had a big fallout, but this was before the fallout. But anyway, I went over right before grand opening and a lot of us who knew the projects got assigned to various executives to basically be their tour guides. And I got Jeffrey and his wife and had a wonderful day with them. I mean, they were the nicest people and, and they were very thankful. And a couple of weeks later, I happened to be, this was post open. I happened to be back in Paris for working on another project there. And I got a message from a secretary there that said, Jeffrey Katzenberg called for you. And I went, huh? Right, sure. And I still remember going to a payphone. They used to have those in those days in mm -hmm. the in the convention center of the New York Hotel. And I got a call through to Jeffrey's office. And I said, you know, this is Bob Holland. I'm returning Jeffrey's call. And his assistant said, just a minute. And Jeffrey got on the phone. And, and I still have no idea why I'm talking to him. And he says, Bob, he says, I, my wife and I just wanted to thank you for your tour and all your time and, and wish you all the best in what you're doing with the company. And, and if you ever need anything, let me know. <laughs> wow. Okay. That was my, my second, my only second interface with Jeffrey, which was very nice. But anyway, so I, uh, I got at post opening, I, I I moved back to the U.S. I was working on uh, Coronado Springs, which was my big project at the time, and some other things. But I kept dabbling in France because a lot of the staff, as you can imagine there, particularly given their financial situation, was, um, was uh, cut. So I, I would help with that. I actually did move my, my family. Um, so post opening of, of Disney, Euro Disney in those days, um, they asked me if I'd like to expatriate and bring the family over. And I said, sure. And I said, well, you know, what, what are we doing? And they said, well, you know, a convention hotel and a convention center and this, that, another thing. And we'd like you to run all those projects. And great. I'd love to do that. So I packed up the family and we moved and 
said, how long is this going to be for? They said, well, minimum two years, but probably more like four or five years. That's great. Wow. Put, put our kids in great school in Paris. And we really loved living there, had an apartment with a view of the Eiffel Tower. I mean, what more could you ask for? Except I had, I was there about a month and I was invited to attend a meeting with all of the senior executives of the Walt Disney Company and, and the Disneyland Paris Company, Euro Disney Company. And basically at that meeting, my project that they had expatriated me for got canceled. Oh, no. <laughs> I went to my wife and I said, I don't know what's going to happen now. And anyway, they, they said, don't worry about it. We got other things. And so we cobbled along, along with a bunch of projects, an indoor water park and some other variations of hotels and convention centers for about 13 months. And finally, um, again, I, I got a phone call from one of my bosses and ultimately talked to Peter Rommel. And Peter said, it's just not sustainable anymore. We're going to have to cut our losses and you're going to have to come home. So anyway, they that was like a Thursday or Friday. He said, we'll give you a final decision on Monday. They called me about 1030 in my apartment in Paris on a Monday. And the movers were there Friday and we were on an airplane that next day. Holy smokes. It happens fast. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of those, again, I, I, you know, I, I certainly was nowhere near the, the level in the organization of responsibility as Frank Stanek. But when you guys did the interview with him, I, I just had to laugh about so many parallels in his career, um, completely different time, different companies, different places. But it's like, yeah, I've been there, done that. I know. Well, it's as I've said to other people, I think I probably said to him, it's almost like you're in the CIA or something. You know, you get the call, you get, you go. <laughs> Wherever it is around the globe, they'll send you off somewhere. Yeah, it really was. Um, and I did, I did. Hong Kong then, at, at the, towards the end of my career, I was very involved in the beginning of Hong Kong um, when we were programming in the early design phase of the hotel. I, I worked with the HR group in Hong Kong and, and did a lot of the local hiring for the team. And then all of a sudden, I don't remember exactly what happened, but my boss, who was a, was a vice president um, higher than me, he apparently... I don't know. Anyway, he took over the job for kind of the middle of two years, and then he decided to leave Disney, and I ended up with uh, the Hollywood Hotel and the Disneyland Hotel in Hong Kong for the for the last year, which became one of the last last of my Disney projects. But it was very interesting working in Hong Kong because it again was you know it was foreign and it was different, but it was different than Paris, and it's certainly different than Italy, and and it was a great experience. Sure. Well, for Paris, you mentioned the uh, indoor water park. Was that the volcano water park with uh, built around the lava lagoon? Lava lagoon. That's right. That showed up on the internet one day a couple of years ago, and I have no idea how people got a hold of that because it died really fast. Um, Anyway, they thought they wanted uh, an indoor water park. There's, there's a company called Center Parks in Europe that's very successful at running kind of indoor water parks and what have you. And so we looked at them and they said, yeah, we think we can do an in It actually was an indoor outdoor water park. But Michael wanted a famous architect. So we actually were in the process of hiring Norman Foster. He's actually Sir Norman Foster. Mm. Um, he's a very famous British architect. And it's done, I'm trying to think something that you might know in the U.S., but anyway, take my word for it. He's a very famous um, British architect. And, you know, he's sort of like the 
top 10 or 20 in the world. And so Sir Norman and one of his partners comes in and we have a meeting at the, we used to call Euro Disney um, Development Company offices in Paris. And I just couldn't imagine why Norman Foster would be interested in this because it just is not his kind of thing, but he's quite excited about it. And, and so again, Peter Rommel and some other big wigs were in this meeting with Norman Foster and they basically say, well, Bob will take it from here. And Norman says, well, okay, you work with my partner, Ken, and you know, we'll work out a contract and things like that. So they fly off and, um, I'm conversing with his partner, Ken in London about putting together a contract for this. And so I sent in the boilerplate Disney contract, which is onerous and most people don't want to sign. Mm. And, and most lesser name architects, we just browbait them and say, if you want to work for Disney, you have no say. Some of the big name architects occasionally get to negotiate a few clauses in it, but not a lot. Anyway, so we're going back and forth about what the program is and that kind of fee. And of course they had a big fee and, Anyway, um, we didn't get very far and we didn't get to signing a contract. And I was always very careful about telling people to not do any work unless we have a signed contract because Disney's had a lot of issues with those kinds of things. So anyway, after a few weeks or a month or whatever, I call Foster's partner and say, I'm sorry, but the project been put on hold and I didn't want to come back. Okay, fine. We understand about a month later, I got a phone call from Wing Chow, who was my design boss. And Wing said, Michael Eisner just got a schematic conceptual design package in his office of the Paris water park. How did this happen? <laughs> I said, what? He said, yes, I'll send, send it to you in the overnight. The, he got a package with a letter from Norman Foster. Here's our design. I said, Wing, I know nothing about it. So I call... Foster's office first to his partner and I said what is this all about and and he says oh you know we just kind of got excited about it and decided to work on it and I said you don't have a contract I can't pay you I you know you put us in a really awkward position hey he said, don't worry about it and I said well this is a real problem and he said well you need to talk to Foster about it so I call I never knew where to call him Sir Norman Sir Foster <laughs> Norm anyway so I get Sir Norm on the phone and I, I said what's going on and I said, you, I, clearly you had no direction to start. He said, I know that. And, and I said, I can't pay you. He said, it's okay. And, and, and he said, we just got excited. So we decided to shred over the weekend and we threw this package together. And I said, well, you certainly create a lot of waves here. And I said, I've never had an architect do this before. And there was this kind of long pause. And again, you got to realize Norman Foster has a bit of an ego, like a lot of big architects. And sure. Long pause, and he says, well, he says, that's because you've never worked with an architect like me before. <laughs> and I went, okay. And he said, don't sure. worry about it. So if you don't want to do it, you don't, don't do it. He said, you don't owe us anything. I'm not going to sue you. Don't worry. And so anyway, I passed the word on the wing, and that's the last we ever heard of it. Subsequent to that, the, the project, like I said, many of my projects revived on somehow they were sort of not dead. They were on life support. And and it shows signs of life again. And we hire um, another architect, uh, Bernardo Fort Brescia. He's the one that did all the pop and all-star stuff. And he does his version of it. And we have this big presentation with Michael scheduled at the studio. 
and they were having this and and also this is where it got really awkward with 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 the imagineering attractions group um it was decided that we were going to have a third party show designers design the the show portion of it mm-hmm. which we did and so the show designer and this fairly well-known architect shows up uh, in in Burbank. Well, the night before, the model was coming from Phoenix or somewhere where it hadn't where it was being built, and it came in this really huge crate. And we were supposed to do the presentation in the boardroom of of the Disney building at at the studio where Michael's office is. And this crate finally shows up about ten o'clock at night, and even though the model was was cut in half in two pieces, there was no way that we could get it in the elevator to get it to the seventh or eighth floor, wherever the boardroom was. And so I'm trying to, oh gosh, what are we going to do? I got Michael at 8.30 in the morning and I can't get it where it's supposed to be and everything else. So we're scouting around the the corporate office building there that I didn't know very well in the middle of the night. <laughs> I finally find a, a conference room on like the third floor and I said, guys, we're going to have to carry the model up the stairs, which is the fire stairs, which is what we did. We, we got the model into this conference room and got it set up. I have no idea whose conference room this is. I don't even know what department it is. And so I leave a note on the nearest desk that looked like a secretary's desk to the conference room. I said, if you're wondering why there's a model in your conference room, here's why. And Michael's going to be here at nine o'clock. I, I then have to call Rummel's secretary to have her call Michael's assistant first thing in the morning to tell Michael not to come to the boardroom, but to come to this third floor or wherever it was. So we've, we got Michael directed to the right place. But prior to the meeting, I happened to, to uh, run into Peter Rummel in the hallway. And he, and he said, this meeting is not going to go well. And I said, oh, <laughs> good. I said, what, what's up? <laughs> and he said, well, first of all, he said, the finances are so bad at Disneyland Paris that everything's being canceled, and this is going to be one of them. But he said, we're so far along, we might as well do the review. I said, okay, well, that's bad enough news. <laughs> and he said, I said, what other bad news is there? He said, well, Marty Scalar's going to be there. <laughs> and I'm thinking, great, you know, you're the one that said, Marty's people weren't to design this thing, and now Marty's coming to the meeting. Well, anyway, Marty was very civil, mainly because he probably knew the project was dead. And we did about a half-hour review with Michael, and he was was pleasant enough, and everybody left. And Peter said to me, wrap the project up, it's dead. <laughs> so, oh, boy. Anyway, um, that's why I was quite honest shocked that I saw, well, I'm not shocked I see anything on the internet, but was a little surprised that I see these drawings from the third party um, show design group on the internet because to the best of my recollection, we, we packed up the boards, um, shipped them directly back to the Paris design, uh, Disney development company group there and I think they were archives. So who had photographs of them, released them? I don't. I didn't think a lot of people beyond me had ever seen them. But yeah, I always wonder how those things make their way out, especially for something like that, which was not really known at the time. Roughly, when was that? That 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 all happened? I don't know. Late nineties, two thousands. It was oh, okay. pre nine eleven. So late nineties. I, I will say though that, that in spite of sometimes these kind of tense 
relationships that that we got put in with uh, the attraction side of the business, Marty, and and those people that somehow I maintained a fairly civil relationship with them. And I think part of that, to be honest, was the fact that I started out there and and they knew who I was. I, I always tried to not play the politics as, as much as I could get away with. And, um, you know, my relationship to Marty, while it certainly wasn't close, I will say that I was a recipient of several of his um, red flare notes that he sent out occasionally congratulate people on projects or 20, 25 years with the company or whatever. So I, I will say that my relationship with Marty was pretty good, which surprisingly, like I said, there was a lot of, Michael saw it as somewhat as a competition in his early days. I think he saw that he had two groups. He had a development company that had a lot of real estate experience and a lot of experience working with famous architects, which he liked. And he had an attractions group. And particularly the first couple of years, sometimes we would be doing rival designs against each other, which was a little awkward and created mm -hmm. some ill will. But anyway. Yeah, I've always heard in stories about him, he, he seemed to enjoy sort of having two different teams and kind of pitting them against each other just to see what would what would happen. I think in the early days, it was to maybe to see, you know, he didn't know anybody. He came in and everybody was new and to see what the capabilities were. And, and you know, for one reason or another, um, the line was drawn that the development company was going to do everything, including master planning that was outside of the berm. And the attraction group was going to focus on inside the berm. Ultimately, um, you know, the development company and the um, attractions group were merged back together actually under Peter Rummel who was the head of the development company which I think also maybe caused some issues and then ultimately it, you know it, the president of WDI went back and forth uh, for a lot of years they were people that had primarily business or real estate experience and then you know eventually um, Bob Weiss came in right is a, a lot of back and forth it's um it's company politics, you know. Disney's not immune to corporate politics. I can tell you that. Oh, for sure, Ab absolutely. Egos. I mean, you know, talented people, powerful people have big egos. One person you did mention that I did want to ask about was uh, a very notable and important person in this field that we're talking about, and that's Wing Chow. So I just wonder if you could talk a little about him. Wing is is an amazing guy. Um, you know, he, in some ways, he was a little bit like John Zovich. He he was a tough guy to work for. Wing was very demanding. On the other hand, he always had your back, particularly with other people, <laughs> and um, he was always a huge promoter of people that he respected and he trusted. He, uh, you know, I, my, my name is on Main Street, sort of, in Hong Kong. Oh. When, I, when I say sort of, it's, it's on the side street that goes off of Main Street. <laughs> and since they've added a cafe there now, you pretty much have to stand on a table to see it. But it is, <laughs> in, fact, it is in fact there. Along with uh, several of my other um, resort team members that were in Hong Kong and you know, while Marty ultimately approved all those things, and I certainly thank Marty for that, 
Um, I'm quite convinced it was because of Wing fighting for us, and um, it's the kind of thing that Wing Wing would do. It, he had a unique relationship for quite a few years. Um, from, I would say, from the time we finished Grand Floridian, where I think Michael then had trust in Wing's judgment, um, all the way up until at least the days when then the development company became part of Imagineering and then Imagineering started reporting through attractions. That's when things started, you know, through the operating group. That's when things started to change. But up until that period, which was the late 90s, Wing had a direct pipeline to Michael. I mean, Wing had Michael's ear. Michael was extremely interested in design and, and, Michael and, and Wing had a lot of access to Michael, and, and that's one of the reasons that we would see Michael for extensive reviews four, five, six times a, a project. And, um, you know, a lot of my role, because we were working mainly with third-party designers, some of which were f- quite famous with huge egos, was, was my role in, in many ways was to try to guide the outside the designers into what a Disney project should be, um, somewhat second guess what Wing would like, and then ultimately third guess what Michael would like. <laughs> and so, you know, we would always do design reviews with Wing first. Um, Wing was the kind of person that, that, and I respect this, that there is, and I agree with it, that there, there's not one solution to anything. That that design is is hard work and is and, and the best design comes from iterations, and so one of the toughest things working with well-known egotistical outside designers sometimes was convincing them that no, they couldn't present just one design. They had to present a bunch of options, and uh, you know, design sessions with Wing were grueling, <laughs> uh, but I there were few people more committed to the company than wing i mean wing wing would work 18 20 hours a day i would swear because he would call me from at all hours of the night and from places that i thought it was late here but i knew it was in the middle of the night where he was uh, <laughs> sure just he was incredibly committed to disney he wanted to produce the best product and uh you know i i, I we could have done it without him although at times it was challenging to keep him happy <laughs> but i you know i'm sure show designers felt that way with michael and john i mean with uh with marty and john hench and other people too that they were very demanding people right right yeah it's, it's just hard to imagine this period it must have been really interesting and frustrating to work with these outside designers because this was such a different period for the company to be working with these people. And, you know, you spoke before about Predoc's design for the Mediterranean, and that's a really, like, deconstructed, almost brutalist uh, resort. <laughs> you know, it's it's very different from what you would think of as Disney. And, you know, you mentioned that these people, of course, have egos, some of, some of them very well-deserved egos. It just must have been really interesting trying to bring them into – sort of meeting halfway with a, a Disney tradition. Yeah, I, I guess uh, the, I guess the strengths I brought to it was when the development company was formed, um, some of us were trained as architects, but a lot of people they brought in were people from more real estate business backgrounds. 
And they, some of them, a lot of them really struggled with the design aspects and really understood understanding the design process and what was good design and what wasn't. And I'm not saying I was always right, but being trained as an architect, I think I had a lot better understanding of you know, good design versus not so good design. I think I also had a lot better understanding about how designers think. And, and, and I learned a lot about the big egos of some of the big design people. And I think that some of it was being a diplica- diplomat. Some of it was pushing the right time, the right place. I didn't always get it right. Um, Antoine was very much a brutalist in a, in a way. I mean, he'll probably deny that. Uh, he was fantastic in terms of forms and spaces and and just incredible. But there was nothing there's nothing soft and fuzzy about anything that Antoine ever did. Uh, as far as I know, he's still alive, but I, I don't think he's producing a lot of work right now. Um, and, you know, a lot of my conversations with, with Anton were, you know, you, you got to you gotta lighten up a little bit. You got to, you know, and he, and, he, and he kept saying, you know, he said, I, I, I'm not a realist. I don't, I don't, I design something that's evocative. I'm sort of like the, you know, the new wave film director or whatever. Mm. I, I don't, I don't design. I'm not, I'm not Bob Stern. I don't do <laughs> historically correct work. And if that's who you want, you have the wrong person. And of course, I have to say, well, Antoine, I didn't pick you. Michael did. So we got to make this work somehow. Um, and, and Michael, I mean, he knew what he was getting into because because Antoine did Santa Fe Hotel before we did Mediterranean. It's very hard edged. Yeah. It's very cosmic. It's very out there. And and Michael knew what we were getting into. And so did Wing. And but Wing, you know, again, Wing wanted to please Michael. He wanted to use, he, you know, we had to make it work with with Antoine. Um the Mediterranean Hotel, I remember doing a big design presentation in early December in the conference room next to Michael's old office. It's when he was using Walt's old office. And we set up this room, and I got Antoine there, and we go through this presentation, and it seemed to go really well. And Antoine and I are high-fiving after it's over. Oh, what a great job. This is wonderful. About a week later, I happened to be at the Disney Development Company holiday party. I can never, I'll never forget it. it. Was at the Hyatt Grand Cypress here in town, and <laughs> Wing says in the middle of the party, "We need to talk." And whenever Wing said that, I knew this isn't good news. And I said, "What do you mean we need to talk?" And he said, "Well, Michael really doesn't like it, meaning the design." And I said, "But, but, 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 but," you know, he he didn't say anything. Well, you know. Michael didn't want to offend Antoine, and, <laughs> and but he said we we gotta we gotta make it much softer. And and my job was to call Antoine. I mean that's was often my job with these big name designers. And I called Antoine and I said Antoine, I said do you remember that review? Yeah, it went great, didn't it? Well, Antoine, it wasn't quite that good. And so we, you know, we talked through it and we softened some things up and we ultimately got through design reviews with Michael, but it would have been, it would have been the most out there project at Walt Disney World for sure. Definitely. It's just so funny to me that Eisner so desperately wanted these big name architects, but when they did the thing that they do, then he kind of, he kind of would balk when he sort of 
it's not as if it wasn't as advertised. You got a pre-doc hotel and he kind of balked at it. We, yes, we did. I, I don't know. I think, I, I don't, you know, things change, things happen. I don't know. It was easier to work with Bob Stern because Bob Stern is quite comfortable with doing historically reasonably correct, you know, um, thematic work. And, and Bob Stern and Michael Eisner had a relationship that went back almost to Michael's childhood, um, family, uh, because Bob used to do work for the Eisner family. So they knew each other and not to say that we didn't have challenges from time to time with, with Bob and some of the projects, but it wasn't, it we weren't those kind of challenges. We knew that he was going to do Disney architecture for lack of a better word. Um, that wasn't true with pre-doc for sure. Um, Gwathmi Siegel, who did the Contemporary Hotel, both the new DVC and, and they did the Convention Center edition, probably somewhere in between. Um, but anyway, there, there was a whole range of people um, and the other people that Michael wanted to work with. And I, I, but Michael, you know, Michael was willing to do more cutting edge architecture. I mean, I, I can't imagine that the Team Disney building here at Walt Disney World would be done today. Oh. Sure. Uh, that's an Isasaki Is- Is- building, um, and and frankly, in my opinion, it's been botched up with trying to Disneyize it. They've they've done some things that I think are really pretty, um, well, not not respectful of the original design, but you know, it's their building. They do what they want to do with it. Um, but Michael, he wanted a he wanted a collection of architecture. It's just that I'm not quite sure what happened with the Mediterranean. I, I really think. Ultimately, it would have gotten built if it hadn't been for the first Gulf War. And people, probably some would have loved it and probably some would have not loved it. <laughs> As with all things. Well, before we leave Disney, you know, you worked on a number of other resort projects, uh, a number of DVC properties. Is there, is there any of these other projects that really stand out in your mind? Any Anything of note that you'd like to talk about? Um... Probably Animal Kingdom Lodge, another one of the projects that was not really my project to start with. Um, I was aware of it. Uh, the, the people that were on the team, I most of them I knew pretty well. But I think it came about where the vice president of, of, of uh, resort development for, in those days, Imagineering, former DDC, left the company ra- rather suddenly. And I got promoted rather suddenly from director to vice president. And it was a project that was underway. It was very challenging because of, of the projects that, that I was involved in. It's probably closest to a theme park in terms of its mm-hmm. level of, uh, of design uh, and theming. Um, Joe Rohde had a little bit to do with it, but was not um, incredibly involved in it, at least in, in the original phase. It was very difficult because, again, it was it was doing something that was a bit closer doing the theme park, having the animals and having to introduce the animals to the pastures well before the hotel was finished under construction, create a lot of constraints that we never had to deal with. Um, it was very close to not making opening day. Um, so it was it was quite a quite an exciting project and I think turned out really well. And I think most people feel that way. So. Yeah, that project is a beautiful project. General to say about the hotel projects that maybe when you think about hotels that are being done today, um, 
at least our original thinking was the hotels were not the theme park. Part of that was driven by budget because we were told quite clearly by Eisner and Wells that we could not afford to build hotels that had theme park budgets. <clears throat> but also, I think philosophically, because we were dealing with third-party designers who had their own will, no matter how much you tried to, to sort of direct that, but also while we wanted them to have a Disney overlay and certainly be a Disney experience, we didn't necessarily feel they needed to be the theme park. And... Consciously, um, the, the Disney overlays were not quite as um, obvious as they've become in more recent years. And that's just sort of a philosophical approach. You can see that in the original Disney Magic and Disney Wonder ships. Um, they clearly had a Disney overlay and they were Disney's sort of guest experience, but they were not, they were not designed as the princess, the palace of the princess. Mm. And that was done intentionally. Um, I'm not saying who's right or wrong. I mean, the Disney Magic and Disney Wonder were rated the top ships in their classification for many years. They still are, as are the new ships. Um, people certainly weren't complaining about the experience. But, you know, I also know a lot of the Disney ex guests expect it to be Disney, you know, in your face 24-7. And that's not how we necessarily approached the first hotels. They had themes, they had storylines, but they were not necessarily Disney intellectual property storylines, which today, as you know, there's an intellectual property overlay being put on everything. Right. It's As you say, it's a real philosophical change. I mean, when you look at, I mean, not only the original hotels, the contemporary and the Polynesian, which were not Disney in any way, they're very themed, they're beautiful. Uh, but even the ones built in the 90s, uh, it was the same way. It wasn't centered around, you know, you built uh, Port Orleans and Dixie Landings. It wasn't, you know, based on any movie or anything. It was just a, a theme. A th Telling a different story. I mean, Michael never once said to us, you need to make this more overtly Disney. And what I mean by that is character or intellectual property, you know, existing overlay. You know, you need to tell a story. It needs to be an interesting story. You need to be consistent. It needs to be well done. It needs to be a great guest experience. But it doesn't. It doesn't need to be Mickey Mouse. It doesn't necessarily need to be Snow White. Right. Well, it's a much. Um, it's a much wider view of what Disney can be. I mean, Disney means a very quality, well themed, beautiful guest experience. It doesn't necessarily mean Mickey Mouse. It doesn't have to be Mickey Mouse. It can be, it can be a bigger thing than that. I mean, I will say, you know, when I go into some of the hotels like Grand Floridian, on one hand, I got to stop myself and say, well, wait a minute, it's been open twenty five years, whatever it is, and anything changes, and just because I did it a certain way, had a certain storyline, doesn't mean it has to be that way all the time. I, I will say that sometimes it bothers me when I see some of the overlays that just don't seem to make sense into the overall storyline of the hotel. Now, some people may argue you've had the wrong storyline for 25 years. Maybe so. Um, so I don't know. It's, um, it's a very different approach because clearly management now is much more about the synergy of, you know, we, we have intellectual property and we need to make sure that it is, it is displayed and promoted in every possible place. You know, again, I read the comments on the blogs and things, and not everybody agrees with that. Some people do. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, absolutely. Well, you uh, wind up leaving Disney in 2006 and go on to teach at Penn State. Uh, what, what drew you to teaching? Well, my father was a teacher, although high school. It's something that I always thought I wanted to do when I got my master's degree uh, in architecture, which I really didn't need in terms of a license, but I did it because I knew that was sort of the minimum if I wanted to teach full-time somewhere. So I got it right out of basically in sequence with my bachelor. Um, so that's something I always wanted to do, but frankly, at Imagineering, my life was so busy and as mm -hmm. well as my family. Um, and I often didn't know where I was going to be next week, let alone a month from now. And my ability to commit to even teaching one course as an adjunct, I just felt was impossible because I just, my Disney commitment was so much more. So again, I, I, conversation I had with wing, maybe about 2000 and four, I don't know, something like that, 2005, somewhere in that time period. When I had been doing a little bit of work on Shanghai, some early concept feasibility work for the hotels there. And I was in Wing's office in Glendale and he said, well, Bob, he said, you know, Shanghai is going to be our next project together and it's going to be great and everything else. And I said, Wing, well, maybe not. <laughs> Looked at me, it's what do you mean, maybe not. And I said, well, you know, I got other things to do in my life. What do you mean you got other things to do? And I said, Wing, I've always wanted to teach. I really want to commit to teaching more than part-time. I don't even know how I can do that working for Disney. So sometime when the time is right, um, you're going to get a phone call from me. Arr, you can't do that. So well, <laughs> we'll see. So in July of 2005, um, we were, I think, had wrapped up hong kong by then or about rock wrapping up hong kong and i started talking to some schools and i went to penn state and i started talking to some people i knew there and they basically said we want to hire you i didn't have a contract or anything but they said we want to hire you can you start in the fall and i said, okay fine so i called wing first i said wing this is the phone call <laughs> no it is <laughs> i said yes it is so we talked with wing and then at that time don goodman was um president of Imagineering. So and I knew Don well, and I called Don and I said, I said, I'm not in a rush to leave. I said, let's try to work out something that I can leave in the next six months or something like that, which is what we did. So I went off to Penn State. I, I, I had other reasons. My mother at the time was well into her 90s. Her health wasn't that great. She couldn't travel to see me anymore. Again, I was finding it really impossible to get to see her very often. Um, she was about three hours away from Penn State. Penn State was sort of my second hometown. I had lots of friends there. So anyway, I went off and taught there for seven years full time. I loved it. It was great. Other than the weather was pretty crappy, which I knew. <laughs> and uh, anyway, we, we maintained two residences for a variety of reasons, mainly our children down here. And then they were resettling in Orlando. And so after seven years, I said to my wife, I said, how about we move back to Florida? I'll teach part-time, which I still do some. And uh, I came back, but it, it was great. I, I um, got to get my hands both in architecture and they have an architectural engineering program. So I did both. And then I, I left that full-time in 2013. I, in the seven years I was there, I taught four summers in Rome, which was great to go back to Italy. And then um, since I left Penn State, I taught two summers in Hong Kong for them, which was great to go wow. back there, not working for Disney, being more of a, a little bit of free time on my hands. 
And uh, I still do academic consulting. Uh, the biggest thing I've been involved in recently is with uh, University of Florida. They have an architecture program here in Orlando called City Lab. It's a master's program. And uh, I help them develop a uh, graduate degree in themed environment integration. The idea is that it's not an art direction degree like Savannah has or recently University of Central Florida started one. Cal, Cal Arts has one. This is more of a, I won't call it exactly a technical degree because it's not that, but it's aimed more at people that will be either discipline leads or project managers in the themed environment business. So that could be themed hotels, ships, theme parks, you name it. So we got that off and running. Um, Steve Grant, who was with Disney even longer than I, 27 years, he retired a year ago. He's running the program. I sort of sort of an informal advisor to him. Um, they're in their second year. It's been very popular. Now all we all now all we need is for the industry to recover so people can get jobs. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll 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 second that motion. Absolutely. Well, that's a very uh, that's a great thing to be involved with because you know, as as you've talked about your own career and you know, a lot of a lot of other people who come up in the industry when they describe their careers, it's kind of it's an art that they had to discover on their own because it's something that wasn't really taught in schools. So it's nice to have it kind of codified, uh, where if you really want to learn this this sort of world, that there's a place that you can actually go to learn it. Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, again, there have been sort of art direction schools around for a while, and, and, and they're excellent schools. But as, as I think you know, that although the art directors may be the most well-known and, and, and maybe certainly should get the lion's share of the credit, um, there's a whole lot of people behind those art directors, show producers, that make these things happen. And um, some of them are very narrow-focused technical people, and that can be problematic. Um, it takes people that have um, an understanding about what the themed environment business is all about, and it takes people that can project manage and help orchestrate all the hundreds of people that it takes to do a major theme project and get it done on time and budget and with the vision that the show designer wanted right well that's absolutely true and you know if you're looking at a show producer they not only have to they have to at least have a, f a footing in the artistic side of things because they need to know about everything from i mean everything finishes and uh, you know different kinds of treatments for things and whatever but they also have to make sure the trains run on time and it's for these projects, which involve so many variables, so many variables that are constantly changing, it's um, it's really a lot to keep track of. It's a science. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it is yes, it's a science, but it's also, um, boy, you, you know, you got to be flexible. You got to think on your feet. You gotta, you can't avoid risk. You have to, however, reasonably manage that risk. Um, you know, the, the, the project manager has the tough task often of, I mean, theoretically, a project manager is, is in charge of 
design budget and schedule. But in reality, <laughs> Disney, the project manager really isn't in charge of design. They have a charge to deliver that design, but they're not really the one in charge of the design. But they definitely have a, a strong responsibility for budget and schedule. And um, they're tough to manage in a, in a moving target. Sure. That, that, that always wants to be the best it can be. You know, again, it's sort of the, the John Hench thing is, yeah, you can you cannot do that. You can cut that out. Um, I'm not saying you can't, but at some point in time, the thread starts to unravel and you don't have a sweater anymore. You have a bunch of yarn in your hand. And, and, and I think you can see that with other, I mean, certainly other competitors, Universal and others, even Vegas have gotten much better. But you know, particularly in Vegas, and I haven't been there for about 10 years, but, you know, you have something that's elaborately themed and done pretty well, then you turn the corner and it's like, wait a minute, it's a whole different storyline, it's not the same place, it's, you know, and Disney, you can't do that. Right. I hope you can't, anyhow, at least we weren't supposed to do that before. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, Bob, thanks so much for uh, talking to us today. This has been, this has been great. Um, and we uh, really appreciate your time. Okay. Well, I appreciate taking the time to chat. It's uh, it's it's fun to sometimes reminisce about these things. People have often said to me, "You ought to write a book," but I'm yeah. not sure I want to do that. So this this will have to take its place, I guess. Well, now you've you've heard me berate people in the past. I'm I'm always in favor of berating people to write books. So uh, I I extend that to you because these are. I mean, it's it's valuable history on one hand, but it's also a valuable lesson. I mean, as you see in your teaching and in this program for University of Florida, it's, uh, you know, valuable real-world information. That wraps up the interview with Bob Holland. We'd like to thank him for coming on. And, in fact, that's only a taste of the full interview uh the patreon subscribers will be getting the full interview of that and uh we may air some of it later in regards to some some goodies and and hopefully have bob back he he was really fun to listen to that's right we had kept some choice tidbits in our pocket for future episodes because uh, of things that might might fit in nicely there and things we have planned and as you said, hopefully we can have him back because there's so much to talk about and uh, it was just really fun to talk to him. Uh, speaking of our Patreon, Michael, do we have any new Patreon subscribers? We do. We have welcomed another uh, subscriber this month, uh, the mysterious N. Nunley. Yes. Sir or madam, as the case may be, we uh, <laughs> we welcome you to the fold and thank you very much for taking part. Yes, thank you. And if you would like to help us uh, put these episodes together and participate in monthly meetups online, uh, that address is patreon.com slash progresscityusa. We appreciate all of you who participate. And it's usually this time we ask you all to email us, but Michael, this month we're going to uh, do something a little different. One of the things we haven't done yet on the podcast is a mailbag. And guess what? We're going to do a mailbag. Jeff, we got some emails. Oh, got to love opening the mailbag. We haven't done this since episode two. 
So oh that my was gosh. 10 years ago. We got to dust off this mailbag. Exactly. Uh, you know, the mail's been kind of slow lately, but, but it finally got here. And, you know, we're really thrilled to hear from people. So without further ado, Chris, who's one of our Patreon backers, uh, says uh, in part, hey guys, uh, he thanks us for bringing back his memories of his early family trips to Walt Disney World in the 70s and 80s. He says, uh, we're talking about um, our last episode, which was the discussion of the 1986 Walt Disney World Christmas Parade. Uh, he says, we were in Walt Disney World in 1985 for Christmas morning to watch the parade and hopefully be on camera. Uh, he says he had watched a VHS tape from 1984 to try and figure out the best place to stand to be on the live broadcast. My man. And, yeah. He says we were right on the curb across from the, one of the cameras on Main Street. So, man, he he figured it out beforehand where to be. As prior to the parade starting, we met and got a picture with Regis. Wow. A Regis encounter. Uh, says one funny story was one of my relatives saw us on TV and tried to call my grandmother to ask her if she knew she was on TV. This was when the parade was shown live and before cell phones. So apparently she probably knew she was on TV and couldn't answer the phone. Uh, he says uh, they recorded it on VHS but had a technical glitch. Uh, and they pleaded with ABC and their local affiliate and sent them a blank tape and a return envelope. It says magically we got a recording of the parade but were told not to share where we got the recording from. Hey, wow. Uh, yeah. He says he thinks the statute of limitations is over since it's been 35 years. I kind of agree. That's a, that's a nice hookup. Says that Christmas present that year had been the trip and some Disney-themed gifts. Went to the Magic Kingdom for Christmas Eve day and recalled that it closed at 6 p.m. that night. We went to the top of the world that night for the dinner show. Before the typical Broadway at the top show, they did a Christmas big band medley. Oh, which, man. That sounds awesome. Yes. Says they went back to Contemporary and left cookies for Santa, who did come while they were sleeping. Uh, Parkview was so magical that night with the Christmas lights in addition to the usual lights on Main Street. That is a heck of a Christmas setup, I gotta say. Yeah, I didn't know. I mean, Santa comes to the Contemporary. That's pretty great. I know. I'm. Uh, it's bound to be one of his better stops along the way. That's pretty good. And, like, you know, left cookies out. That's nice. Says he woke up, if memory serves me well, at 5 a.m., have a picture of us waiting for the first monorail of the morning. We were some of the first guests in the park that Christmas morning. We staked out our space across from the camera at the Penny Arcade. It was kind of funny that cast members came and told us that the parade wouldn't start for a few more hours, but the parade would repeat at 3 o'clock. No, we didn't move. Uh, he goes on to say he was a kid of the 80s. He remembers the monorail preview of Epcot in 1982, which I'm jealous of says he couldn't wait for the park to open. They went back in 1983, and he says, I was enthralled with the land and Communicore, which inspired three science fair projects. I wrote a letter to get information about hydroponics from the land. Excellent. Uh, I developed a pen pal relationship with Dr. Henry Robitaille, who was at Disney from 1980 till 2000. Uh, he says he found him on LinkedIn a few years ago and told him how thankful he was for his advice and information. He still has the information that he sent him and the letters he wrote to him critiquing his science fair projects. That is that is a fan after my own heart. What is that? This man is thorough. I mean, yeah. I, I'm still most impressed about the scouting locations of the Christmas parade, even though this is a more detailed level. But, uh, wow. Yeah, I know. Very. And, you know, it's Henry Robitaille was a big, big deal. Uh, very prominent person in the land sort of makeup. So it's very cool. He took the time. Uh, he, he says one last thing. Uh, 
He thinks it would be an interesting investigation comparing 1982 World's Fair in Knoxville to Epcot Center. Many commonalities I see include the use of lasers and introducing average Americans to computers and technology. I remember World's Fair showcasing pay-at-the-pump gas pumps and ultra-pasteurized milk that didn't need refrigeration. The America Pavilion had a film on energy and IMAX. The SunSphere pre-show was about energy that reminded me some of Universe of Energy. Japan had a painting robot that reminds me of the bird in the robot show in World of Motion. He says he went to the World's Fair twice in uh, 1982. So that is, uh, maybe that's something worth looking into in future uh, episodes. I would be definitely interested in that. I uh, When I was on tour one time, we stayed in Knoxville and we ended up, I don't know. We did like a Priceline thing, and it was this hotel right on the mall of the where the World's Fair was. So they had a giant Rubik's cube in the lobby from the World's Fair, and oh wow, the the kind of bones of the old World's Fair location. So I, I've always wanted to find out a little bit more about that. That'd be interesting. And you know, we went to Epcot that year, but we did not go to the World's Fair. Of course, we were so young that it wouldn't have meant as much to us. But right, I always right. regret that we pro- we didn't go to that because. It's a rare opportunity, something that doesn't happen this, happen uh, much anymore. So thanks, Chris. That was uh, that was great. I really appreciate it. Our, our second uh, and last letter comes from Andrew, who writes in to say, I just finished listening to your interview with Frank Stanek, and it was one of the best three hours spent of my life. Thank you very much. Uh, Frank's a great listen. As Andrew says it touched on so much of what made him love Disney so much starting in the late 70s. And he had some questions. I'm going to pop these questions over to you. See what you think. Number one, the underground of the Magic Kingdom. This is the Utilidors. How necessary was it, and would anything like this be built today? Well, I'll start with a second. I, I don't think anything like it would be built today. And I think yeah. uh, now that the precedent's been broken, uh, they're not going to go do it again. I, I think it was a big pain for them to build. I, I would argue it's it's necessary. It's uh, I mean, I used to work at the Magic Kingdom twice, and there are so many facilities underneath uh, that the actual facility of the Magic Kingdom. Plus, you got to think about where they're building it. They needed to build above where they built, so it it served a purpose of kind of keeping the Magic Kingdom from flooding. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, but I mean, you know, there's cash control, all the stuff. It's really efficient use of space and uh i mean i think the magic kingdom would have been huge if they wouldn't have built the utilidors you know you think about all and and all the clogging you you think about this uh, liberty square that we were talking about all the way down to frontierland the utilidor runs underneath all of that so people can just deliver food straight up into those restaurants and merchandise into those stores without having to go out in the street so i mean i would argue it's necessary obviously it's not super necessary as they ended up doing but you know epcot is built around these this kind of hourglass so you can just go around the the perimeter of it and get in you know after that i I can't say much yeah yeah it's it's one of those things where i think probably wasn't like mandatory and it added to the cost probably quite a bit but it's a quality of life thing that, I mean, you don't have to have it, but it makes things, it makes the show better. It makes the quality of life for cast members better, makes things much more efficient. So it's one of those things that's a bigger investment up front, but it pays off dividends for 50 years. 
Yeah, yeah and you have the freedom to build stuff where facilities would be. You don't have to yeah. worry about that. They're all underground. So Yeah, that is a great point. Like, look at, like, at Disneyland. Anytime they've had to build, like, Toontown or even recently with Galaxy's Edge, they had to move a lot of backstage stuff out of the way. Uh, at Disney World, they've been pretty free to build out uh, in a lot of places because all that stuff was underground. So, uh, yeah, it's I endorse it. His second question in regards to when Walt passed away and Roy Fouch to continue on with the Florida Project. In today's society, would that have happened or would it just be put to rest? I would say put to rest, probably. I think the Walt Disney Productions was a very unique moment in time, the the kind of clout that they had, but it was also still a family-run company. And I think that that family vision was such a big part of Roy going ahead with Disney World. Because, um, I mean, they, as Frank Stanek said, they, you know, they were really spending a ton of money that they, you know, didn't even make in a year. They couldn't, it was like four years to make the, the money that they would have required to build Disney World and not do anything else. So, uh, it was a tremendous risk, and it seemed a, a lot personality-driven. I think in today's era of corporate world, I, I don't think it would happen. I agree. I, I think I'm, and this is not a comment about Disney. It's a comment about every corporation. I don't think it would have happened because I just don't think corporations have the willingness to put everything on the line for something they believe in. Like that, like Roy believed in the idea and was willing to put everything on the line because he knew it was a good idea. He knew it was Walt's, what Walt wanted and knew that Walt was right, probably, in in his decision-making. And uh, Roy was a very smart guy. And I just don't think any corporation today has the vision or the courage to do something like that. So... I don't know. We'll see. But uh, it's interesting to think about. The The last question is, is a little bit of an existential one. It says he fell in love with Epcot starting with our first visit in December 1982. Nice. And uh, would continue. But he has to ask after listening to the podcast, did the Epcot Park really need to be built considering the enormous budget and shortfall afterward that attracted the Sharks to take over? I would say that something with the name of Epcot needed to be built uh, for – you know, that when they went and got the Reedy Creek Improvement District, they were selling Epcot and there was a lot of pressure from the, you know, Florida and I'm sure the counties for something named Epcot to show up. I mean, the idea was that it was going to be a city. So they changed it to something they could do in the theme park. But I, I feel like they kind of had to make Epcot myself. I think I, I think that's a great point. During the 70s, there was a lot of pressure from the media and from Florida state legislators about, okay, we gave you all this leeway. We gave you this unprecedented power, and it was because of Epcot, so where's Epcot? I think that was a really good point. Uh, the other point I would make is that they had an insane amount of land, only a little bit of which was monetized in any way with the Magic Kingdom and the resorts. Right. So they had to do something, either sell off the land for like real estate development, which would not have been great, which uh, later happened in some parts, and, or add new attractions that would cause people to come and stay longer. 
and that's what they did. I think it was the right call. I think it paid off long term. Uh, I mean, it was very expensive up front, but in uh, attendance did increase. Uh, people stay started staying longer. I mean, when you look at the numbers, the attendance came up. It stayed up. It changed the way people vacationed at Walt Disney World, and uh, I, that was the intention. So I think I think uh, they did what they had to do. Well, yeah, and for a like we have said during the a few of these episodes, they're they're trying to appeal to an adult demographic in their early years. And say, you know, you can do boating and recreation and stuff. I mean, I feel like Epcot added a whole other layer of uh, demographic to can enjoy uh, the Disney parks. Absolutely. And, you know, when you look, it really did work, too. I mean, I think the big problem for Disney at the time is they weren't, uh, the movies weren't doing well. And, and Epcot was very expensive, and that's true. But if the movies had been clicking... I don't think any of the green mail, I don't think any of that would have happened. I, the studio was just foundering and the theme parks were the only bright spot. And so regardless of how expensive Epcot was, I think that if the studio had been doing well, it wouldn't have been an issue at all. Well, and to go one more thing to go to the back to the Frank Stanick interview in that uh, with just a small extra bit of money that Disney probably didn't have, but they could have put money down on Tokyo Disneyland to be a stakeholder in it more than they were and could have made a ton of money from that immediately. So that's yeah. something else to consider. That's a good point. Well, uh, thank you so much, Andrew, for your comments and for your questions. We really appreciate it. Uh, thanks to everybody who's gotten in touch about our episodes. We appreciate it. As always, you can reach us at podcast at progresscityusa.com with comments, questions, conclusions, whatever. Just drop us a line. We appreciate it. Yes, please email us. And also, if you have a chance, uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use. Uh, it really does help. We love hearing from you and getting feedback. Uh, Michael, what is coming up next for this podcast? Well, next month, we are going to be taking a walk right down the middle of Main Street, USA. We are taking on the theme park, entering the way that most guests do with a stroll down the streets of yesteryear and uh, taking a look at that area and some of its influences. Put on your spats and uh, let's get moving. So, And your Sunday clothes. That will be a fun one to uh, relive some... Uh, some nice memories of my college program and uh yeah we who knows who we who we may interview for that it'll be exciting hmm yes hmm, hmm. very interesting so as always thanks for listening uh do keep in touch via the email uh michael is on twitter at progress usa i'm on twitter at jeff g crawford please be in touch with us and we will see you again real soon so long everybody 